Welcome to the Voices of Australia podcast, hosted by me, Anthea Hancox, and Lydia Tessima, where the concept and reality of social cohesion is deeply explored. This podcast is brought to you by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. Each fortnight, we bring to you an interesting guest who present a new and often unexplained perspective of Australia. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from which we are recording the podcast, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we pay our respect to all First Nations people. Welcome everybody to our latest edition of the podcast. We're delighted to have you with us and uh, welcome Lydia. It's oh, lovely to hi have you. Anthea. We're absolutely thrilled today that our uh, special guest is Professor Noreen Young. Professor Young is one of Australia's leading and most respected workplace diversity practitioners and thinkers. She is uh, the Professor for Indigenous Policy at the University of Technology, Sydney, uh, Jambana Institute for Indigenous Education and Research. Noreen leads Jambana's highly innovative Indigenous People and Work Research and Practice Hub. Professor Young has previously led and managed two diversity peak bodies, Diversity Council Australia and the New South Wales Working Women's Centre. She's also worked as the Director and Employment Lead at PwC's Indigenous Consulting for three years. She's influenced by both her Indigenous and cultural her diverse heritages in this work and has received numerous awards and acknowledgements, including the inaugural Westpac 100 Women of Influence Honour for Diversity. Noreen is an author of Gary Yala, Speak the Truth, centering the experiences of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians at work, which is said to be the largest survey of the experiences of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people at work published. Noreen, we are absolutely delighted to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us. I wonder if we might start by you telling us a little bit about you and, uh, and your interpretation of what social cohesion at work actually means. Um, okay, so I um, grew up on Durrawal country in Sydney next to the beach at Cronulla. Um, I was very, very, very privileged to do that. It was um, a working class area in or more diverse than it is now in terms of the class mix. In those days, most people who lived there, um, like my parents, just did their, just lived there because they loved the ocean. Um, my um, background is in the city working class um, on one side, descendants of the Eora, so um, traditional owners of the inner, what's now the inner city of Sydney. On the other side, immigrants who came from Sweden and Scotland um, and lived on the waterfront in the Sydney inner city. Um, I went to public schools. I then went to teachers' college as um, lots of people from my kind of class and race, lots of women from my class and race background did in those days. I then went and worked for my union and became an employment, which was the then Independent Teachers Association. And I then um, became an employment practitioner and that's what I do. Um, so in terms of what social cohesion means in the workplace, I think an absence of racism, an absence of sexism, um, people respecting each other and working together um, cohesively and, and it, I suppose, 
I, to me, um, diversity practice has always been about um, treating each other in a way that's polite and appreciative and respectful of mm-hmm. our excellent differences. So I suppose that would be my definition. Uh, that's that's a terrific definition. It's very easy for people to understand too, I think. Um, were there particular experiences that occurred to you or to others within the workplaces where you were that helped to refine how, um, how complicated or difficult this is to achieve? Because there are still so many people yeah. that are not experiencing this sort of yeah. collaborative, respectful type of environment. Mm. Uh, what, what's, yeah. where, what's brought you to this particular point? Well, I suppose I was only 24 when I started um, organising as a, as a young union organiser in workplaces, and that was in um, the TESOL industry, so the teaching mm. of English as a second or other language. And so people, um, and I'd been in that industry, were by and large really respectful of each other in those kind of because they were people who were interested in diversity and they were really interesting, lovely environments to work in and, and you were dealing with um, people who'd come to Australia to learn how to speak English. And so, um, you know, and that was what I, for example, wanted to do because I was always really interested um, in people who weren't the same as me. Um, so that was um, a really good experience. Mm. Um, the employers were awful. Um, and so there was a lot of solidarity among the people who worked together. But then I um, uh, worked, um, we ran an advice service at the New South Wales Working Women's Centre and, and I was director there for seven years and I saw and I was exposed to, um, in a workplace environment, I already knew it happened in other environments, um, just how badly people could be treated because of their gender or race mm. um, or ethnicity or sexuality and there weren't many out trans people in those days um, yeah. in workplaces. It was starting to happen during my later years working around diversity. Um, so I just started to see, um, you know, I, I'm white passing so I've never really um, directly experienced um, racism based on instant assumption. I get a lot of the other kind of appearance racism about, you know, you can't possibly be Aboriginal or you're not Aboriginal, that kind of response. Um, But other members of my family um, do look different to me and get that kind of response. so I suppose um, that was uh, – we'd been raised to be anti-racist in our family um, and so – and to be embracing of difference or um, to, you know, wanting to be um, welcoming or around difference. Mm. And so those attitudes really surprised me and that motivated me to work around it, I suppose. And it's so interesting, Noreen, that you you said that you were always interested in people who weren't the same as you. Would you be able to elaborate on this? What exactly um, interested you about about people, and how did how did that connect to your passion or pursuit um, in this space? Um, 
look, to be honest, I grew up in a really boring place in the Australian <laughs> suburbs. And, um, you know, like people were nice, but there wasn't a lot of variety and there wasn't a lot to do. And I wanted to get out of there as a, you know, as a teenager. Um, and so I suppose I wanted to travel. I wanted to see difference. And I, I think also in, uh, to be fair, we didn't realise, you know, where there was difference in those environments, but people hid them or people didn't talk about them. So, um, you know, we didn't, uh, they just weren't out, I suppose, as it's not always um, being of the kind of um, dominant culture. Mm. But, um, you know, I just, Really, I'm a bit of a kind of gossipy type of person, really. Bit of a Doris, what fellows would say. Um, I just really like. I'm really interested in people, and right. yeah. yeah. Um, Natural yeah. curiosity is such a healthy yeah. thing to have. Yeah, it, it can just it yeah. can be just that. That's true. And did you? Because um, I'm looking. I'm literally looking at a piece of paper right now with your bio. And I'm overwhelmed by how amazing this is. And I'm just wondering, did you, um, prior to achieving a lot of what I'm looking at, did you know that these are the things that you wanted to achieve or did you? No. Okay. No. No, yeah. no not at all. I'm a working class, Aboriginal descended, Cal's descended chick from the suburbs. There were, I just never, mm-hmm. ever envisaged myself doing much really. Um, so I've been incredibly fortunate and privileged and really a product of, you know, great public education and, you know, the laborist um, policies of the 70s and 80s, really, of the Whitlam and Hawke governments um, in Australia. I'm an absolute product of them. And so I've just been really fortunate. Mm. Yeah. Noreen, do you have a view about that? Th- there's a variety of terminologies that float around uh, certainly that seem to confuse people within the workplace, um, the, the, that being diversity and inclusion. Do you, <laughs> do you have a thought as to, do you differentiate and, and how would you describe the difference between the two and, and what's your thinking about how workplaces should actually deal with those particular questions, those uh, particular um, words, well, I mean? Yeah, well, I think diversity is the kind of term for what we are and as much as people don't like it and I you know people backlash um I was at a um talk yesterday I did a talk and and another kind of diversity veteran did too and he talked about EEO which is you know what we were first dealing with in the 80s and then that um still exists because we still have a whole lot of policies and procedures that don't um, play out very well in workplaces, um, but um, around behaviours. But you know, it changed to a more positive framing, which is diversity and inclusion. To me, diversity is the noun, and inclusion is the verb. Mm-hmm. Um, some people like to really critique um, <laughs> diversity and inclusion practice as you know, a business thing. Um, uh, not very effective, all of those things. My approach to it is that it, it's what we have yes. and um, my job is to make the best of that and to make it work in yeah. the best way possible. And I guess for, it relies, 
yeah, it relies on other people doing their part too, right? Um, because yeah. diversity, yeah. yeah, diversity and inclusion is um something that we all need to participate in in order f- for it to have its effect. It's like knowledge is power when it's actually applied, sort of thing. I was actually yeah. wondering, you know, observing the past few years, there's been a lot of change, um, in the political space, um, culturally. Mm. Um, would you? How would you describe the change or the positive change that has happened in this space in Australia? Because from my perspective a lot has changed but perhaps from yours you have you know more specific comments or observations in in workplaces or generally generally diversity um, and inclusion I would say in Australia but specifically in workplaces because I've Mm -hmm. recognized a change in the last two years in particular yeah me too um um I think that Black Lives Matter was really important um you know, and it's interesting for First Nations people because um, it was this thing whereby that happened elsewhere, um, but it was so overt and so heinous, and that um, footage that was available via social media for everyone to see, I think, um, made people think about it and think about that that happens in Australia all the time, Mm. that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people die because of um, violence and deaths in custody and um, inappropriate police behaviour. And I think the campaigners, so for example, where I work at Jumbunna, um, the campaigners around the various coronial inquests and mm-hmm. um, you know different things that happen, um, and we've got a major campaign being run um, by Latoya Rule at the moment around the use of spit hoods. Um, so there's yeah. been a lot more attention drawn, I think, to um, the reality of life for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia, and as a result, and concurrently other people of colour um, and um, people um, from immigrant and refugee backgrounds. I think all the campaigning around um, refugees um, you know, coming here and how they should be treated um, has had an impact. I think that the the opening up of the discussion around the Uluru Statement has had an impact and the blanket no um, of the previous government and the election campaign and then the opening up and the promise of this new government um, around um, and committing to the Uluru Statement in full um, has been really productive. So I think mm. a combination of things, and to be honest, um, I've got young people in my family and... I think you were all raised with at school with um, anti-racism, anti-bullying. I think stuff around what's happening in your generation around gender identity and disability is really helpful um, mm-hmm. because um, there's change. And I don't know if it's the case for everybody, but I certainly know that my kids, well, one of them in particular, Paul's, who's younger, um, Paul has she's. Um, having to do it less and less, but has, you know, pulled um, my partner and I up on gender identity mm-hmm. stuff this year. Um, 
I think there's a there's yeah, you're all much more um I don't know, you're just kinder. Yeah. It's it's a really it's an interesting mix <laughs> of push push and pull factors. Yeah. That you do have yeah. young people that are far more comfortable and, and demanding that people actually progress in that area and at the same time yeah. you've got an an overarching set of leadership that seems far more um, in in line with where the community wants to go yeah. and yeah. the community well, feels more not, comfortable in doing yes. that. Yes, and I think the last 20 years have been particularly horrible for um, a lot of people in mm. this country. I won't say diverse people, I'll say a lot of yeah. people you know, two dozen these days have a family member who's LGBTIQ, you know? Yeah. Who doesn't um, have a family member that's married in or married up with your family who's not from the same cultural background? Like, I just mm. think that um, our demographics are changing and people and, – and there was – And it's touching. An yeah, yes. more and more people yeah. are being touched by that. Yeah. If we go back to the workplace component – what do you think the key elements are for an inclusive workplace? Because there is sometimes a real uh, lack of understanding about the role that some individuals play within their cultures and what the expectation is of their broader community when certain things occur um, that mm. has an impact then on how what what um, sort of the the relationship with the workplace. Do you do you find that? And and are there particular keys? that you think need to be put in place in any workplace in order to ensure that it is as inclusive as possible? Um, I think in I think workplaces require real leadership, but I think um, even in the most committed of workplaces, and I work around this, um, the legislative frameworks around... Um, behaviours are not working. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't matter how we look at it. Um, we've had, you know, four years of Me Too campaigning. Mm-hmm. We've got recommendations in place. Um, I am work. I work around workplace racism a lot. Um, whatever way you look at it, the mechanisms for how these things are dealt with in workplaces are inadequate. Um, particularly from a, a victim-centred viewpoint. Um, I think that the Race Dis- Sex Discrimination Act and the Race Discrimination Act that um, it's based on and therefore all of the framing legislation in this country was written by white men mm-hmm. a long time yeah. ago and things have moved on. So we really need a period of review. Um, so I think that... Um, that legislative framework is um, um, holding things back. Um, I think there's always going to be racist, there's always going to be sexist, there's always going to be homophobes. I think for 20 years they felt a lot of entitlement and freedom um, and to say what, to say what I like, um, whatever they wanted and I think we're now in a political environment that is kinder, that is talking about these things, that is um, uh, that is open and receptive to the diverse mainstream, as I call it, not diversity and not difference, but the diverse mainstream. It's more representative at 
the representative level of the diverse mainstream and I think it's a period where we can get some change. That's really interesting. Um, Noreen, what doors do you believe <clears throat> new legislation would open in terms of creating a more diverse mainstream um, workplace? Well, I think um, I, I've, we've, a number of us have put together a First Nations Employment Alliance, which is an Indigenous-led um, employment grouping. Um, it's Jambana, the ACTU, Reconciliation Australia, PwC, Indigenous Consulting and First Peoples Disability Network. Um, we're going to be working on a work plan that campaigns around workplace racism. We want an inquiry into it and some recommendations. We're not hard and fast on what those recommendations might be, but we think the legislative frameworks need a review because they're just not worth Mm-hmm. So it, it really does require that um, that legal edge to it to ensure that organisations actually appreciate how important this is rather than simply relying on the, the, the sort of the evolution of the culture within the organisation or yes. individuals to drive it. Yeah, organisations have never done anything because they thought it was a nice thing to do. That's why we have trade unions, right? Yes. Mm. Um and, I, I, and, you know, there are always leaders within organisations. There's always good people within organisations. But um, we need legislative frameworks for things to happen. We just do it. Mm, absolutely, the, yeah. <laughs> and, and the current ones are, in my view, really inadequate. So, yeah. Mm. That that makes sense to me because I was trying to kind of like you you see change happening and then you recognize that it like on one one end like change happens because of pressure and cultural shifts, mm. but mm. then you know the system has to kind of meet you in the middle and follow up. With, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, but in this country, we've always had good legislative frameworks around workplaces, and then in the last twenty years, a lot of them got. Um, you know, decimated, but we need to put pressure on and change occurs in this country because we put pressure on and it occurs at the legislative level and that's how it occurs. So, yeah, I think we've got an opportunity now. Noreen, we do have um, a a lot of people that end up in diversity and inclusion type roles, as you say, are often those that are um, really do have a real interest in diversity and lean in that direction and have a, a fuller understanding. But we do, th- do you find that there is an issue around the middle management component? We, we run a program called A Taste of Harmony and, and what we find with A Taste of Harmony is that it provides a, a vocabulary and an opportunity for people in that middle, middle management role to open up conversations about culture and about yes. um, religion and th- those sorts of things uh, in a way that isn't particularly threatening. Uh, do you find that, th- is it leadership, is it middle management? How, how do you find that inclusion or where are the, the really knotty bits, if you like, to, to try to break down when it comes to inclusion? Well, I think a couple of things. I think the first thing is um, that um, a, a taste of harmony seems to me to be um, not trying to diss you, but, um, and I, I think your organisations like yours held the faith during a really difficult period, but to me, um, rather 
um, celebrate it properly. That was kind of that was, as we know, Harmony Day, a, a John Howard way oh, yes. of looking at the diversity of this place. Um, you know, which denies racism and denies mm-hmm. a whole aspect. So, yes. but you're completely right. So, I think if we can have some change around at the national leadership level about saying no, we're diverse. We are. You know, this is who we are, and um, you know, let's be honest about who we are. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. Middle management. Um, we've, you know, traditionally had some issues around that demographic embrace of diversity. Um, but I think, like in all things, just those demographics are changing, right? And, I, and that's a you know, the talk I was at yesterday, um, my old diversity mate um, mm-hmm. raised the young woman who took her life in Sydney two weeks, three weeks ago because of workplace racism. And, um, you know, the depths of that tragedy. And I've worked in a, in a big corporate and I was, you know, pretty distressed by what I saw in it. And so I think we have really dire issues. Some of them are related to the lack of leadership around embracing who and what we are and simply saying racism is unacceptable. Um, And in an evolutionary sense, it's, it's been, you know, a period where there's, it's really been hard for people. So um, I think if we can have a whole lot of leadership embracing and changing, um, then we'll get some difference in our country and um, middle management are just going to have to embrace it. <laughs> well, they are they are as diverse as society is in many cases as well. well starting it's, to be, yeah. Ab- absolutely. Yeah. And sometimes there's just a reluctance to, to talk about it in an open fashion, it's uh, yes. it's it's sort of yes. let's just put that to one side. That's just yes. too difficult. Yes. Let's uh, let's yes. just talk about yes. finances or some such thing. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Would you say yes. so? Have we moved past? Have we moved past a time where we're including people because um, their proximity to whiteness or their proximity to um, things like you know education and being able to articulate themselves or being in a certain class or connected to people of a certain class. Um, do you think, because, you know, tokenism was a big conversation back in the days, mm. and it is mm. it is something that we're thankfully not having to acknowledge a lot these days, well, at mm. least I'm not. Um, but do you, like, I just wonder what your thoughts are about that shift, that specific shift from where inclusion exists, at the f- like, on the surface, but the, the reasons why or, or the how um, has sort of changed in the background? Um, um, I'm still seeing um, a lot that there's still a need in corporate for um, embracing of diversity to become normalised. Um, I'm still seeing those ridiculous, uh, ridiculous arguments about tokenism. Um, even as it pertains to gender, 
Um, I'm certainly still seeing a lot of stereotyping around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and what we're perceived to be um, and what people would like us to be. Um, So I think there's some... There's a way to go, but I think the environment's better. Yeah. yeah. Noreen, do you have some examples of where you've seen um, sort of inclusion or social cohesion work particularly well in, or, or a change in where a workplace has gone through a bit of an evolution in that space? Do you have any examples of that? I've got to say I work in the most delightful workplace in Chambana, um, it's the most culturally safe. It's, it, it is absolutely Indigenous-led and um, our ways, our relational ways of dealing uh, uh, with each other and as people um, are implemented in the workplace. Um, you know, there are non-Aboriginal people who work there who I haven't asked them, um, but there's certainly a respect comes from, I, I, you know, I, I don't know if you know this about um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures, but there is a generosity around disability, around sexuality, around gender identity that characterises us, I think, and that is certainly um, implemented at that workplace. So I think, for my, you know, one of the shifts, I'd like to see around the change we're having around the Uluru Statement is um, the generosity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and communities form the basis of how this place operates and interacts. Um, and I, I, I point to my workplace as an example of that. Hmm. You, you started in, in unions Mm-hmm. Do you feel that unions are uh, tapping into something now that they maybe hadn't necessarily before? Are they really embracing this diverse workforce and and putting more things in place to assist people within the the work that want to get into the workforce but don't necessarily feel particularly welcomed in those areas? Are unions playing a particularly important role in that? Well, I think unions reflected have always reflected what their workforce membership looked like. So in the days when um, it was largely men in blue-collar roles who were union members um, and were the backbone of the economy, that's what unions look like. I think that feminists have, um, like myself and others and many others, and feminist leaders have impacted on unions in an extraordinary way and the union movement's now led by progressive feminists and 25 years ago when I was a union official that would have been unheard of and those two women are extraordinary and the average union member is now a nurse um, who's 45, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's really changed. I think that um, the change... I, I think I heard Sally McManus say this at a thing we had the other day and it was really interesting. Um, she owned that, the relationship with the trade union movement and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, in fact, was the story of this place um, since Federation, certainly, um, and it had its good and its bad. Um, and I think 
the last five years where, or ten years where the uni movement campaigned and organised so strongly against um, the Howard and Abbott community development program where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people weren't paid to work on the dole, work for the dole, um, has really um, shown a commitment. But it goes back a really long way to Wave Hill and before that. Um, I, I think in terms of Calb communities, I look back and I think my grandfather, Dutch Young, was probably one of the first Calb union officials. I think that um, the, the socialist feminist analysis that says um, that unions haven't always been great, but um, we're better off with them than without them mm-hmm. um, is the analysis I'd take for all um, <laughs> people. And I think things are really changing yeah. um, and I, I see that myself and it, it's really great. And as I said, we've got these two amazing women in the leadership roles now and we should take heart from that. Yeah. And, yeah, that's really interesting because we've covered a lot about the system. Um, I'm wondering, you know, for young people that may be listening, um, how can they sort of what attitude should they keep in mind or how can they best equip them equip themselves to be um, positioned to, you know, work in these sorts of spaces that are ideal for, for us, these like these spaces that we're striving to create everywhere um, because undoubtedly there's still a competitive element to finding your way into certain spaces and mm. unfortunately because of the experiences or the sheltering or the lack of exposure that some people have experienced, they might have these misconceptions around um, what role they play in terms of mm. also being mm. a part of this. Or what voice do they have? Yeah. yeah. So well, I'd always say join your union. That's the okay. most important favour you can do yourself at work. Um, mm. And, you know, it, it's it's really hard when you're young to assert yourself, I think, and, mm. you, and especially if you're not, um, you know, somewhat private school person. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, exactly. And I... But I, I think that um, we find our own tribes and we find people who uh, we have commonality with at work. I've made some – I met my partner at work. I, I shouldn't say that now. Long, <laughs> long time ago. Um, I, you know, like I think we find strength in numbers in workplaces and um, we find people who we have – things in common with and join your union yeah 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 wow there you go we can (laughs) we all play a part right we all play absolutely absolutely and we all have our own particular part to play we don't we're not trying to copy each other in order to do the same thing exactly as as we come to the end of the podcast Noreen it, it would be really interesting to sort of now um sort of move the camera out to a broader level and think about the role of the workplace in creating a cohesive society, um, mm. how how do you what do you think are the things that you would like to see organisations, workplaces, businesses do that would contribute to social cohesion across the the broader part of the community, not just with their workforces? Um, I I think workplaces in and of themselves are great. That's where you mix, right? That's where you mix with people who aren't like you and you um, – mm. I remember my dad sent us to school outside Cronulla um, when we were growing up because he said when we went out and mixed, we'd have uh, – in, in the when we went out and worked, 
we'd have to mix mm-hmm. with people that weren't just white, you know, yeah. Australians from the Shire. And so we should learn how to do that and be, you know, respectful about that. And so I think workplaces are really important in um, social cohesion because that's where they mix. I, I read a book, I launched it, I co-launched it with um, uh, Professor Carl Rhodes from the UTS Business School called Woke Capitalism, where it talks about workplaces taking on allegedly woke, I'd never use the term except respectfully, <laughs> but allegedly woke issues, um, but not, and from my, from my perspective, not being able to even offer basic labour rights, right? Yeah. Yes. So I think um, it is important that workplaces reflect the community that we live in, that they provide good and decent wages, that they provide good and decent conditions, that they provide good and decent workplaces where everyone can go to work and expect to be respected. Yeah. Um, so, so in this and, time when yeah. we've got more and more organisations that are speaking out about so- social issues, what you're saying is they really have to walk the talk. They really have to walk the talk. You know, you can't be running around with, um, you know, providing acknowledgement to country on landing and sacking all your baggage workers, mm-hmm. many of whom are Aboriginal, right? Yeah. So it, it's just, that particular organisation is a classic example, in my view, of woke capitalism because it um, does all those things and then can't provide the most basic expectation of society. So I think walking the talk is really important. Mm. Wow. Thank you, Noreen. This has been an amazing episode. Um, we've really appreciated having you here and I think I, I can't wait to listen back to it. <laughs> I always listen back to the episodes. And I'm like, oh, wow, we really, you know, really got <laughs> stuck into it. Um, but yeah, your your work and um, your perspectives is, is awesome and your thought leadership in this space is really needed. Um, oh, thank you so much. <laughs> no, absolutely. That's we really lovely. appreciate you. Um, and this does bring us to the end, the end of this episode on the Voices of Australia podcast um noreen young thank you again for for joining us and um, to anyone anyone listening we'll catch you on the next episode (laughs) this podcast was brought to you by the scanlon foundation research institute this podcast is produced by facial farrah with sound design and mixing by john bigelow original music is by official steno you can find all our publications on our website at scanlaninstitute.org.au. Please subscribe to be the first to receive our next fortnightly edition.